We are in uh, the series, a series in the Gospel of Mark. We're in Mark chapter 11 today. And we're not going to read all of this text in front of you in the bulletin. We're going to read verses 1 through 19 and then come back to the rest of this next week. Many of you probably want to know, probably do know one of the most famous lines from the movie The Prince's Bride. Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Very good. That was very good. That's how I like to start all sermons, by saying prepare to die. Um, you, you, you never had to guess what this guy's intentions were, did you? I mean, he just kind of told you right out the bat. You killed my father, prepare to die. That's what I'm here to do. It was not cloudy at all. Uh, in, the, in the passage that we're looking at this morning, there are a lot of people who are confused about Jesus' intentions. They have certain, certain expectations about what they think Jesus has come to do. And my question for you to think about this morning is, what are, what are your and my expectations of Jesus? What do we think he has actually come to do? What do you expect him, what are you expecting him to do for you? And so we're going to think about that this morning, and then we're also going to look at what he has actually come to do to do because often our expectations don't line up with what jesus has come to do so let's let's read this uh, mark chapter 11 beginning in verse 1 this is god's word now when they drew near to jerusalem to bethpage and bethany at the mount of olives jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever set Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside on the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came... They went out to the city. We pray for us. Uh, Father, this is, this is your word. Uh, and it's a, a passage we usually look at at a different time of year. Uh, but I pray that you would make it uh, relevant and, and meaningful to us 
this morning, that you would help us to understand it, uh, to believe it, uh, and to live out of what we learn from it. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the, the text we're looking at this morning uh, re- records what's known as the triumphal entry. Uh, it's a, a text, it's a passage we often celebrate each year at Palm Sunday. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem to attend the Passover feast. And as he rides into town, uh, the crowds line the street and they take palm branches and they wave the palm branches and they begin to chant, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, you might ask as you're reading this, what's up with the palm branches? Why, why, why the palm branches? In the Old Testament, shaking palm branches was a way of expressing joy. It's actually something that people were required to do every year at the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, but what had happened was, in the period between the Old and the New Testament, uh, Israel was invaded by the Seleucids, and they desecrated the temple. And when Simon Maccabeus kind of drove them out and they reclaimed the temple, they basically had a big ticker tape parade with music and dancing and waving palm branches. And so the palm branch had kind of become something like a a national symbol for Israel at that time. Uh, Kind of like the palmetto flag for for everything South Carolina, all things South, South Carolina. Uh, And later, even when they revolted against the Romans, they minted coins, the Israelites did, and put palm branches on them. So this is very much a a national symbol for them. Uh, The Jews, at this time that Jesus is coming in, are looking for a Messiah to come and deliberate them from the Roman oppression. And so the question is, is Jesus the one? Is he finally here to deliver us? It was Passover, and so they were already celebrating another deliverance from another occupying power. They were celebrating their deliverance many, many years before from Egypt. And so they've seen the signs and wonders that Jesus has done. In John's Gospel, he even tells us that the reason a lot of people are showing up is because they'd seen or heard about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. So they're they're pretty pumped up. Is he the one? He's got to be the one. He must be the one. And so they yell, Hosanna, which means save now. Give salvation now. It's the king. It's the hero. This is our time. It's got to be our time. They expected Jesus to do something for them. They expected him to lead them to victory over their Roman occupiers. So here's a question for you. What do you want Jesus to do for you? What are you expecting Jesus even to do for you? Uh, Some of us perhaps want Jesus to baptize in a way our political agenda so that we can have power in America again. We want Jesus to give us political power. Some of us want Jesus for the fire insurance. We don't really want him at the center of our lives, but, but just in case, I probably need to check off on this Jesus thing. Why take chances? Some of us want a Jesus who we think will bring us joy and prosperity. A Jesus who's going to free us from all earthly sadness now. Some of us want a a Jesus who kind of brings chicken soup for the Christian soul. A a few platitudes that we can pull from here and there to, to help us feel better about life. 
Some of us are thinking, if not saying out loud, Jesus, I'll follow you if. And the thing in the blank is what we really expect from Jesus. It's what we really expect Him to do for us. And in many ways, that's the thing that we actually worship. It's our God in some ways. Uh, Others of us have heard that saying, God loves you and, and has a wonderful plan for your life, but we've starting to figure out that the plan he had in mind isn't necessarily the one we have in mind and life doesn't feel very wonderful at the moment we we expected something from jesus jesus if i follow you everything's going to be okay my business is going to be all right there won't be any trouble with it my my health is going to be fine everything in our family is going to go smoothly if i follow you jesus but It doesn't feel like things are going so smoothly at the moment. It may even feel like Jesus is taunting you, kind of like some fathers who will remain nameless like to taunt their children by singing, you can't always get what you want. You can't always get what you want. And we feel like Jesus is is saying that to us, and we kind of want him to to back off, or at least give us what we want. What do you want Jesus to do for you? What are you expecting Jesus to do for you? Uh, expectations are killers, aren't they? Uh, those of you who went to see Doctor Strange, the movie, if you're expecting an okay movie, you probably really enjoyed it. If you were expecting the greatest Marvel comic movie ever, you were severely disappointed. Uh, your expectations determined how you process that. If, if I expect Jesus to give me a safe, comfortable, pain-free life, I'm going to be disappointed. Maybe even despondent. Uh, Maybe even begin to question my faith when things don't go the way that I'm expecting them to go. And so it's vital that that I understand what Jesus actually came to do. And to begin to line up my expectations accordingly. So what did he come to do? What did he come to do? Well, the first clue that Jesus isn't going to meet the crowd's expectations is found in the fact that he comes riding into town on a donkey. On a donkey's colt even. Now that's not what you and I would expect from a conquering hero coming into town. He ought to be on a majestic stallion or something coming in uh, to save the day. Not a small donkey where you have to pick up your knees to keep your feet from dragging on the ground. What's this about? Well, it actually is Jesus reaffirming that he is the Messiah. Uh, He's fulfilling Old Testament prophecy here from Zechariah. He's identifying himself with that messianic prophecy of Zechariah. But if you go back and look at those sections of Zechariah, it does speak of a Messiah Messiah coming on a donkey's colt. But it also speaks of a gentle king and one who comes to bring peace uh, for the nations. Zechariah 13 talks about a king who will open a fountain to cleanse his people from sin even. And so he is affirming, yes, I am the Messiah. And so they are right to praise him. They're right to call him king. But again, they don't understand what this king has come to do. Is he coming to free us? He's got to be coming to free us. Is he coming to make us great? He's got to be coming to make us great. But maybe he'll go to the temple and maybe he'll raise the, the flag there. Raise a flag with palm branches on it there and, and show that we are throwing off Roman oppression once and for all. Instead, Jesus rides into town. He goes to the temple. He takes a look around. 
And then he leaves. And then he comes back the next day, and on his way back into town, Mark tells us the story where, where Jesus stops to get some fruit from a fig tree, and there's no fruit on the tree, and so Jesus curses the fig tree and says, May no one ever find fruit on you again. Then he goes into the temple and starts what looks to be his own little protest movement. He starts driving out money changers and turning over tables. And then we'll see this next week, but in verse 20, Mark tells us that this tree that Jesus had cursed has withered away. Now that's like, that just seems to be a very odd sequence of events, doesn't it? What's going on in this? Well, let's start in the temple. What's Jesus doing in the temple and, and why is he doing this? The Jewish people were required to bring animal sacrifices to the temple. Uh, the historian Josephus tells us that one year over 250,000 lambs, somewhere in this time period, were sacrificed at the temple. That's a lot of animals that need to be sacrificed. And you've got people coming from all over the place, and they don't have cattle trailers, you know, and F-150s to haul these things into town on. And so the, the people there in the temple are basically helping them out. They're, they're setting up shop and selling them animals for them to sacrifice when they get to Jerusalem. Uh, the text also tells us that there were money changers around. Now, what were they there for? Well, in addition to making these sacrifices, there was also an annual temple tax that the people had to, pl- had to pay, and it had to be paid in a certain currency. And so you would bring your, your dollar or your peso or whatever into town, and they would exchange that into the proper currency for you to use to pay the temple tax. At one time, all this activity was kind of set up on the outskirts of the city, but it had migrated into the temple, into the outer court of the temple itself. And Jesus comes in, and he drives out the people who are buying and selling animals, and he starts turning over the tables of the money changers. Uh, This area, it's important to know, this area where this is happening was known as the court of the Gentiles. It's where the non-Jewish people could come in and actually participate in the worship of God. So why is Jesus upset? Why does he kind of go ballistic here? Uh, Many Jews expected that when the Messiah came, he would actually drive the Gentiles out of the temple to purify the temple. Instead, Jesus is clearing the temple of all this commerce for the Gentiles. For the Gentiles. Verse 17, he says, Is it not written that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? That's a quote from Isaiah 56 which talks about the, the, the nations not being excluded from the worship of God, but being included in the worship of God. The temple is meant to be God's witness to the nations. The temple is meant to draw in the nations to be a place where they can worship and know God. So Jesus is upset that this place that's supposed to be a place for the Gentiles, it's supposed to be a place of prayer for the nations is supposed to be a place where they can worship God has essentially been turned into this marketplace. And you can imagine if, if I don't know, if they were having their Halloween festival in here, the Pine Street Halloween Festival, while we were trying to worship God. Like it would just be, it, it wouldn't work. It, there would just be too, too much chaos, too much commotion. Imagine trying to focus on God 
in, an, in a situation like that. Imagine trying to pray in a situation like that. Uh, additionally, we're told here uh, that, that the temple authorities have made the temple a den of robbers. Now, this may indicate that they were jacking up the cost of the animals they were selling, like they were scalping tickets. Uh, it, it may be that they were overcharging when they exchanged the currency. They charged them too much for this. So basically, it, it seems that they were t- also taking advantage of the people as they were coming in to worship. And Jesus comes in, and he doesn't raise the victory flag in the temple, but he pronounces judgment on the leaders of the temple and on what is going on in the temple. I know this is kind of long, but stay with me. This is, this is reinforced by the, by the fig tree. Most commentators think that this is an enacted parable. You see prophets in the Old Testament do things like that. Uh, in that part of the world, fig trees sprout buds in late October. And then they, these buds swell in these little edible knobs. And then the leaves come on, and then the knobs turn into figs. But you could actually eat the knobs before the figs came, before they turned into figs. They would still eat them. They weren't as good, but if you're hungry, you could eat these. And so Jesus comes with this leafy tree, expecting it to have these knobs on it already, and there's nothing there. There's no sign that there's going to be any fruit on this tree. And so he says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Now, what's that about? In the Old Testament, the prophets often used the fig tree as a symbol of God's judgment. Here's um, Jeremiah 8.13. There will be no figs on the tree and the leaves will wither. Hosea 9.16. Ephraim is blighted. Their root is withered. They yield no fruit. And so the, the, the picture I think that's being painted here is Jesus is saying the temple is like this fig tree. The fig tree is like this temple. It looks like it should be producing fruit. There are leaves on the fig tree. There's busyness in the temple. There's religious activity in the temple. But there's no fruit on the the fig tree. And there's no fruit in the temple. There's only religious busyness. And so Jesus curses the fig tree. And that's a picture of the judgment he's bringing against the temple and against what it's come to stand for and and represent. Uh, Later in Mark 13, speaking of the temple, Jesus says that no one stone will be left on another. In other words, he's saying that this temple is coming down. The temple as a way of approaching God is going to be done away with. He's come to pronounce judgment on the temple. The temple is going to be done away with. Why? Why? Why is he doing this? Why is he pronouncing judgment on the temple? Well, the temple is meant to be this place where you could come and you could worship God. When you came, you offered sacrifices for your sins, trusting in God to forgive your sins because of the blood of the sacrifice that you brought. Worshippers would lay their hands on on the head of the animals that were being slaughtered as a way of saying, my sin is being transferred to this animal and this animal is, is paying the price for my sin so that my sins can be forgiven. The temple was a place where you came and acknowledged your lack of righteousness, where you saw your sin, where you trusted God to take away your sin. 
Instead, the Jewish leaders have kind of turned this temple thing into an assembly line. They're using it more than likely to line their own pockets. They're using it as a system of religious works to establish their own righteousness. Instead of heart religion, they've fallen into this system of religious formalism and works righteousness. And Jesus comes to cut down that tree. Jesus comes to do away with that. He comes to do that, do away with that. Now, we have our expectations of what we want Jesus to do in our lives. But then there's what he actually comes to do in our lives. Because temple leaders aren't the only ones who can fall into patterns of works righteousness and religious formalism. Religious going through the motions. And Jesus comes to lay the axe to my works righteousness and my religious formalism. And, he, and, and the way he does that, we don't always like, right? He does that at times through suffering. He does that by putting us in situations where our sin just bubbles up and we see how sinful we really are. He, he does that by showing us the ways that we've just been going through the motions of worship when our hearts are really somewhere else entirely. He has this habit of, of taking away things where we've been finding our identity. He, he, he finds his way of, of taking away things that we've been resting in for our righteousness instead of resting in him for righteousness. Uh, I remember a friend talking about how he had, he had always played baseball and he expected to play baseball in college and then he didn't, didn't make the team and that source of identity, that righteousness that he, would always, that he had always rested in was taken away from him. And now, how would he define himself that this, once this has been taken away? Uh, Dr. Strange, and I'm not giving anything major here, but if you want to, you can plug your ears. This is very early in the movie. But Dr. Strange, it's, it's a character, he's a doctor named Stephen Strange. And he's very arrogant, he's very successful, he's one of the best surgeons in the world. And with that success, like I said, it bred this sort of this arrogance, all he cares about are his skills. All he cares about are enhancing his reputation. And so he basically uses people to enhance himself, to build his reputation. It's his own little system of works righteousness. Well, then the nerves in his hands are damaged. And they shake so badly, he can't do surgery any longer. And the way that he's always established his worth and his righteousness is taken away from him. It's lost. And so who is he now? We want Jesus to come into our lives and bless us by fulfilling all of our desires and our dreams. Whatever that is, it's different for all of us. Comfort, ease, pleasure, whatever it is that, that is for you. But he has this way of coming in like he comes into the temple and he starts throwing furniture around. And he goes down to the basements of our lives and he starts bringing things up. Like, Jesus, you really could have just left that alone, left that down there. He puts us in situations where our idols begin to bubble up. And, and our, our works righteousness begins to be exposed. He comes and he starts tearing down those identities that we've tried so hard to build for ourselves apart from God. He comes and he tears down these systems of works righteousness. 
he tears down these things that we use to rely on to say, yeah, I'm a pretty good person. And he, he has this habit of, of ripping those away. And that's, that's kind of depressing. But there's, there's good news in this too. Because Jesus doesn't just come to bring judgment on religious formalism and works righteousness. He comes to actually replace the temple. He comes to actually replace the temple. He comes to fulfill everything that all of those temple sacrifices were supposed to be pointing to in the first place. See, bringing those sacrifices wasn't just meant to beat you up and show you how much of a sinner you were. They were meant to show you that God would provide a substitute for your sin. That God was a God who forgives sin. That God Himself would provide a lamb to take away your sin. Jesus is that lamb. He's the lamb that all of those sacrifices of the temple were ultimately pointing to. Jesus comes, and like that fig tree was cursed, Jesus Himself takes a curse upon Himself on a tree on the cross. He takes the judgment on Himself that we deserve for going through the religious activities while our hearts were actually very far from God. And so He makes it possible for us to actually come to God. To know God. Not by going to a temple and sacrificing things, but by coming to Jesus. By coming to Him. By coming to the Lamb and trusting His sacrifice to be the sacrifice that is sufficient to cover all of our sin. And so Jesus comes to bring judgment on the temple, yes, but He also comes to come under judgment Himself for us. And that's the good news of the Gospel. In John chapter 2, talking about this, Jesus says, He's talking about Himself, and He says, if you destroy this temple, I will raise it again in three days. He comes under judgment for our sin, but then He's raised to life for our justification to give us righteousness before God so that we might receive a righteousness that comes not from our work, but that comes from His work to give us an identity as sons and daughters of the King. I was, um, we were listening to a story on on Radio Lab yesterday, my family and I were, and it was about this young lady who basically had no identity. Uh, she grew up homeschooled, home doctored, uh, home birthed. Uh, they basically lived on the ranch in the middle of nowhere and just were isolated from everyone. Her older siblings were 21 and 23, and her parents still wouldn't let them leave to go get jobs because they didn't want them to be exposed to the world. They were trying to protect them. And so she kind of gets fed up with this, and she, she gets away from home, and she's trying to establish her identity in the world, but she can't because there's no birth certificate and no Social Security number and no driver's license and no record of her ever being to the doctor. And so in the eyes of the government, she kind of doesn't exist. And she's running from place to place trying to do things to establish this identity, but it's kind of one of these circles, like, you need these two documents. Okay, I got, no, you need those two documents. And so it's this continual loop where she's trying, but she can never establish an identity for herself. We're all like that. 
We're, we're, we're separated from God, and so we're running around trying to build an identity for ourselves apart from God. And it's like we're creating this big, trying to create this big scaffolding of, of what begins to become this works righteousness. Look, this is who I am. This is why God should accept me. This is why I should be able to feel okay about myself. This is why you should accept me. And Jesus comes to tear that down. Jesus comes to tear that down. Because it can't fix what our real problem is. It can't bring us back into a relationship with the God that we're estranged from. See, what we need is not to create an identity for ourselves, not to create a righteousness for ourselves through our own works. It's to receive an identity. It's to receive an identity as a forgiven son, a forgiven daughter of God. And you don't work for that. Jesus worked for that. And His work is completed. And the identity, the righteousness, the papers that you need, the papers that say forgiven son of the king, forgiven daughter of the king, are offered to you freely, not by working for them, but through faith in Jesus and what He has done. And He invites you to come and receive that from Him. And to lay, as the saying goes, lay all your deadly doing down. Lay all your building down. And rest in what Christ has done for you. Let me pray for us. Father, it is uh, it's uncomfortable when you come into our lives and start tearing down the things that we've worked so hard to build, the, the, the righteousness we've tried to establish for ourselves. But we know that in Christ you provide a much better righteousness. The righteousness that we actually need. The righteousness that can actually change us. The identity as your sons and your daughters. So Father, during those, those painful house cleanings that you do in our lives, I pray that you would teach us to run to Jesus and to believe that he has given the, us these papers of identification, that we are yours and that you do love us. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.